Hey there, creatives. I know I probably always say that I'm excited or delighted or really happy to welcome my next guest. And that's always true. Um, but I am, I'm really, really, really excited uh, to share this conversation with um, my colleague and friend, Angel Duncan. A number of years ago, when I was um, first starting out in private practice and I was working at a friend's group practice, um, uh, Angel moved into the area. And, you know, as a creative arts therapist, sometimes if you're not working around a, uh, a program where there's lots of graduates, um, you're kind of like, you know, all alone, just kind of... Um, kind of figuring it out on your own. There's not a lot of community. And um, and so my colleague was like, I met another art therapist at, you know, some, it was like some networking meeting or something. And, um, and, and I was like, really? I, well, I need to know who this person is. I need to meet them. I, I, um, because I just, that, you know, was hungry for that sense of connection. Um, with other professionals uh, in the creative arts uh, disciplines. And so Angel and I started communicating via email and then we met and it was an immediate connection. And we've been kind of collaborating and, um, and we're friends ever since. And um, one of the reasons why I wanted to have her on the show was that Angel is really humble. <laughs> um, she does so much and um, yet, I, again, like she's just so humble. Like even her bio that she had me read, is like just a teensy weensy tiny smidge of um, all the things that she does and has accomplished. But one of the things I know that she does exquisitely well is she goes out into the community and does public speaking on the work of art therapy with her niche population, which happens to be um, neurocognitive issues, uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, and other um, conditions. And I, <laughs> I have had the benefit of receiving a lot of um, referrals in my practice as a result of her work. And um, and I just know that her approach could be highly successful for other people too. Um, so even though she didn't necessarily have a private practice, uh, you know, in her job here, like she's always been working for um, another agency or something. And then as a result of these talks, people would want her to come out and do therapy groups or take on individual clients. And she's like, I just can't do all this work, you know, so I just sent them to you. And that was, you know, really beneficial for me when I was first starting out my business. Um, and it's not something that comes up in our conversation. So I wanted to make a point to share that with you, which is, you know, really why I wanted to bring her on, because um, she's been really influential in, um, in helping me as I've navigated this process of building a private practice and, um, and writing and other things. Um, so I really hope that you enjoy this conversation and you have some ideas of how you might be able to use public community talks. They don't even have to be, you know, really in depth. Um, they can just be like 30 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but it's this idea of getting the word out there um, that can really make a difference. So anyway, I hope you enjoy. The Creative Psychotherapist is the official podcast of the Creative Clinician's Corner, a practice building resource for creative psychotherapists. 
TCP Podcast is the cast for creative, expressive, and experiential-focused psychotherapists curious to learn how to design, build, and scale a thriving private practice. Your host, Raina Lombardi, interviews successful therapists about the tools and strategies they have used to develop creative-focused practices. They also talk about the products, services, and side hustles they have developed, using their knowledge and creativity to enhance their therapy practices, make a greater impact in their communities, and diversify their income streams. Welcome. Now here's your host, Raina Lombardi. Thanks for listening to the Creative Psychotherapist Podcast. I'm your host, Raina Lombardi, and I'm very excited to welcome my next guest, Angel Duncan. She is um, an art therapist and has an extensive background in counseling psychology, art therapy, and neurosciences clinical research. She's an adjunct professor at the University of Tampa, the executive arts director for the Cognitive Dynamics Foundation, and has a private consulting practice in brain health program development. She works with leading agencies in the US, UK, Europe, and Asia in neurological disease and mental health initiatives. She's a peer reviewer for Frontiers in Psychology and resides on the Medical Advisory Board for Lorenzo's House, a nonprofit resource center based in Chicago for those living with young onset Alzheimer's disease. Thank you so much for being here, Angel. Thank you, Raina. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I'm so excited to have you. Um, Obviously, like, you know, there are some people that I have on the show and I really don't know them. I just like know of their work and reach out to them and ask if they would be on the show. But in this instance, I've had um, like the extreme pleasure of knowing you for a number of years and collaborating and working with you on a number of different projects. And so um, I'm really excited to share about all of the amazing things that you do. Um, with listeners. So thank you for being willing to do that. Of course. Thank you. So one of the things that um, Angel, since I've known her, has really been able to do is just constantly have a stream, uh, a steady stream of potential clients or agencies or facilities reaching out to work with her. And um, And I think that's because of what a great advocate you are. And um, can we talk a little bit about how you kind of got into the work of advocacy? Sure. It's uh, so it all started in the early 2000s in Northern California as a graduate student and all in art therapy, coupled with marriage and family therapy at Notre Dame Denimir University. And um, I didn't know anything about Alzheimer's disease or dementia or really you know, much in mental health on a professional level. And it wasn't until I got involved with Alzheimer's disease working as on my field work hours um, at a facility with persons with dementia. And I was exposed to how art therapy really complemented this population. And then the Alzheimer's Association of Northern California, Northern Nevada chapter took me under their wing and it was the most amazing experience I, I ever had. I think next to my education at the, the program, the graduate program, my real life experiences came from my work at UCSF in San Francisco and the Alzheimer's Association. And it's important, you know, as an advocate, it's just you, you see and you're working with all walks of life mm-hmm. and how, you know, especially in dementia and in mental health disorders, how these diseases and disorders really impacts them. Mm-hmm. And you kind of feel like these are vulnerable people that feel like they don't have a voice. Yeah. So it's almost like a responsibility to, to go out into the world and really communicate that, you know, we're, we're in this together. We're in this world together and how we treat each other matters mm-hmm. and why we should care. And especially with advocacy and dementia, we all have a brain, I hope. <laughs> and, you know, and it's important that we're, <laughs> that we're nurturing it and that we have an understanding of the importance of, um, of research and programs and and what's out there and what's available in terms of resources. Yeah, I I think too, you know, you're you're talking about like having a voice for them, but also I think 
you do a lot in, in collaborating um, with the family and like helping families understand what's happening with their loved ones, which is so important because that's so hard to witness. Absolutely. Um, education is really, there's so much even, and I tend to forget, I've been in the field for 19 years and I, and I still get asked, well, what is Alzheimer's disease? Really? I still get asked, you know, or, you know, I get, uh, I'll get a phone call saying, oh, thank God it's not Alzheimer's. The doctor said he had dementia. They don't understand, they don't understand the differences between what is dementia, what is Alzheimer's. So it's, you know, these basic things that I think are routine, I have to keep reminding myself, there are so many people that don't know. And when families, you know, I, I, you know, oftentimes too, you have, you know, a loved one gets diagnosed and you have a, a spouse or adult child that has no clue. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They just know that their loved one is not acting the same. They're not behaving the same way that they know them as. Mm-hmm. So it really is working with families and advocating the importance of what resources and referrals are available, but also importantly, leading them to the appropriate resources and referrals because there's so much misinformation out there. Mm. So it's kind of trying to be that guiding light for families and the general public. Mm-hmm. Well, now that you're saying that, it makes me think, you know, I bet that there are some therapists that might not know too, if that's not their population, you know, what, what are some kind of symptoms that you would think would be important to refer to have further evaluation for if a therapist were to come across a client that they were having some concerns about? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, repeating, repeating yourself, that's, that's one of the most common ones where you're constantly repeating, you know, you're, you're, you just get lost in conversation. You know, occasionally we have our space, you know, I call them our hiccups where we may space out in that moment and be like, wait, what, you know, you're, you, you lose your track of thinking, but it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking to someone in a session and you're noticing that they're not paying attention or they're getting lost, keeping up with the conversation um, and it's happening more often than not, you know, of course, you, we have our good days and bad days, and there's so many things that can play a factor into to memory, but, you know, repeating, getting lost. I've, I've had um, therapists where they've had clients that see them every week, and all of a sudden, they get a phone call, and the client's lost. They didn't, uh-huh. they, they couldn't get, they, they somehow took the wrong exit, and they're lost, and they, they you know, they didn't find, they missed their session, their appointment. So, you know, or you're missing late payments and bills, or if you have like a couples therapy, like me, you know, being a marriage and family therapist, you have a couple where the person's saying they're not the same person anymore. You know, that therapist ear when you pick up on things and be like, okay, let's backtrack. How is he, how is he or she, how is this person not the same? What changed? And you want to know, is it repeating? Is it forgetting, the, the, losing keys, forgetting, getting lost more? not knowing how to cook, you know, you're, you're just constantly, you, you know, it's these constant missteps and mishaps that, that are happening more often. Those are signs that could be something more and it's time to get an evaluation. Mm-hmm. And you want to know how long ago, when did this happen? When did you start noticing these changes? Yeah. Yeah. That's all really great information. And um, I know you had also mentioned, it's really important to refer to, um, you know, appropriate places. And obviously listeners are listening from all over. What do you think the best way to find information um, for making an appropriate referral specifically to have these types of um, evaluations are for folks? That's a great question. Um, So like the Alzheimer's Association, they're national, they're international, their website, www.alz.org. You can find out information under the sun in terms of referrals. They also have a 24 hour helpline number that you can reach, um, which I should have memorized in my memory (laughs) after working with them for so long. Something like 800 272 something like 3900. I don't know. It's on their website. Go to www.alz.org. Um, but they do have a 24 hour helpline number. They also have online support programming as well. 
a number of resources and places that you can go to. I would also recommend that families look at the Mayo Clinic Hmm. and they look at Harvard Memory Clinic. They look at the University of California, San Francisco or Los Angeles Memory Clinics because they're gonna show, they have resources on their websites too. Their memory clinics also offer you know, what to look for, where are, what are the resources and, and referrals available. But those were the places that I would recommend um, as, as good steps to take that are on a national level. No, that's wonderful. That's really helpful um, for people that are in different areas. And, you know, hopefully if um, with the Alzheimer's organization, Obviously, there there are like local chapters um, all over, so that's really yeah. helpful too. Yeah, they do. And then even you know, there's so many other other dementia resource centers outside of the Alzheimer's Association. Like you know, here we are in Fort Myers, we have the Dubin Center, but we also have the Alzheimer's Support Network in Naples, who does phenomenal work. They even have their own 24-hour hotline oh, network. Wow. In Collier County, yeah, they do phenomenal work. So, but each, you know, each place typically has, I hope, their own. If it's not the Alzheimer's Association, they do have a dementia resource. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, this is definitely your like niche um, population in in your work. And obviously, um, part of what you've done over the years has been going out advocating, but also the education piece. Um, how, how do you kind of get involved in organizing speaking engagements in the community? Um, Cause I know that you've done a lot of that and, and for therapists that are just kind of starting off on their own and they're kind of wondering, well, how do I like help people to know that I'm here and this is what I do and this is how art therapy can help. Um, how do you go about getting these speaking engagements in the community? Because I know you do quite a bit. Yeah, I, I do. Um, well, it kind of just fell on my lap first <laughs> from my work at the Alzheimer's Association because that was my job. You know, I was the program's director and supervisor of uh, the caregiver support groups. And then I led the art therapy session, Memories in the Making, and did tons of trainings. So I had to go out and educate. Um, but, you know, but that's it. But it's interesting because even though I had the job and my job was to go out and do that, you know, there were places already, here's your index cards of people you can reach out to. But I also had to take on my own initiative to research and, and research, you know, find out who these people were. And it is a great way to get your foot in the door and educate about, you know, even as an art therapist, this is what an art therapist is and how they differ from arts and crafts mm -hmm. and what I can do in a meaningful way. So it's reaching, um, typically I find reaching nonprofit organizations, whatever your specialty is in. So for myself, I'm going to reach out to the dementia resource centers like the Alzheimer's Association, you know, like the Alzheimer's Support Network. The Support Network does a ton of educational programs. And they have, you know, from professionals in the community. So if there's a local resource center in the area that's nonprofit, I would encourage, you know, a therapist to approach them and offer, come up with a list. So when I come in, um, I'm prepared. I have kind of a PR kit. So mm -hmm. I have a one sheet document briefly listing of what I can talk about. So here's the title, and then I just give a one or two sentences about what this presentation is. I keep it short, I keep it brief, because people don't have time. You're not going to sit there and read, you know, pages of, of a description, but a general description of what you can bring to the table and an offer as, you know, this is what I can speak about. So the nonprofit companies are great. Hospital settings, they, have, they usually have an education area, like, this, you know, that you can approach and talk to in terms of education or social work. I've done a lot with hospitals and I've been able to navigate my way through working through a social worker at the hospital. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are able to arrange those conversations about um, Alzheimer's disease or other types of dementia. Local libraries especially are huge in offering educational programs. So I did a lot of outreach to, to the libraries, to religious houses, synagogues, you know, churches, reaching out to those environments. Those have been great, as well as parks and recreation. 
Mm. They offer present, they offer people to come in and give presentations on what's happening in the community. So those are the types of people, the YMCA's, especially they have their senior, uh, they have their, their senior program and the AARP chapters, the Kiwanis Club. Those are the types of organizations that really want to know about brain health and they want to know about dementia. So those are the types of people I reach out to with a list. And then the second, you know, then the first thing you hear is, well, how much are you charging? Because mm-hmm. most of these places don't have a budget. Um, if you're working in a, in a you know, if you're working in an organization, that's great because it's usually covered in that salary. But as a first time person starting out, typically I didn't charge anything mm-hmm. as somebody new and just starting out in the field. You know, this is what I can offer because it's, it's what the hope is that you're getting your foot in the door. They like what you have to say. And the next thing you know, you want to get contracted mm-hmm. and this is what you can do. So now it's like, you know, after 19 years, you know, and you, you, you know, I, you pick and choose what you can do if it's pro bono or offering, but then you can come up with a, a sliding scale fee, you know, to give, to give talks. So, you know, and that's at everybody's discretion. Each person's different on if they feel they, they want to charge a fee or not speaking but those are the types of places that at least in my field who I've reached out to and how I've gone about it I've shown up in person because I find that going in person is um, you're having face to face with somebody and it's you you make that connection yeah it's a lot of driving but you can do that and you know phone call you can email and phone call uh, leave uh, messages emails it's half and half and I think you know I think we all know most most of the time emails are going to get ignored or, yeah. you know, they'll, you get a polite, a polite email, like come back, we're, we're really busy right now, try me in a month, you kind of thing. So that's why I find either making a direct phone call or showing up a person have been better ways to, to reach out locally. Hmm. That's great advice. Um, yeah, I think people get overwhelmed in their inbox and it just becomes so time consuming to respond to each email that you almost have to prioritize of like, well, what do I have to get to? Who do I have to respond to? Um, even though you might want to respond to everybody in there, it doesn't always happen. I know like I'm guilty of that myself. I always feel bad and people like I've emailed a couple of times and I'm like, oh, yes, you have. I know. So I know. And it, I know it's not intentional. It just, I know it happens or, or it may go to spam. You know, you just, you don't know. So that's why I feel making a direct, like I, I needed to reach the Alzheimer's association in Clearwater. Mm-hmm. And I sent an email nowhere. It went nowhere. Mm-hmm. I made a phone call, left a message, at least within three days, I got a call back. So gotcha. yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too. I think depending upon like the age bracket too of individuals, um, you know, some people are more responsive to phone calls than than others. I know some people don't like making phone calls for whatever reason. Yeah, um, I mean, you kind of, I know it's a fine line, like, do you feel like a telemarketer or <laughs> trying to get me in or not? But yeah, but I do think it's how you, how, how you go about it. How's your attitude? How do you, you know, if you're, you don't want to be too over the top, zealous, bubbly, you know, <laughs> but you don't want to be like, you know, sound like you're on a suicide hotline number. You know, you just, you tell, it's how you, it's just a professional manner and how you present yourself. I think that is what can be that hook as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. What would you say is um, probably like the most responsive of the, the topics which you do speak about when you go out in the community? Um, what, I guess what I'm trying to ask is if folks are really thinking about, okay, if I want to put a presentation together to go out in the community to talk about art therapy and to talk about how it really can benefit the population that I'm working with, um, like how long do you usually give a presentation for? Is it like 30 minutes, 45 minutes? How much scientific research are you interjecting in there? Um, like what's your kind of approach to that, to make sure that, you know, the audience that you're reaching in the, in the community, um, one understands your expertise, but also they actually understand what you're talking about. Sometimes I think, you know, we can get too jargony or whatnot. (laughs) 
It's true. Absolutely. I'll start talking about, you know, oh, here's a fluorbeta per PET scan and send her, you got to get a CSF sample under a fluoroscopy. And people are like, <laughs> what are you talking? Yeah. It's like, you can see the deer in the headlights. Um, but you, you definitely hit the hell in the head. It's that, you know, you want to talk about things that you are, that's your specialty mm-hmm. that, you know, you know, if you're picking, if somebody says, Oh, can you talk about, you know, for me, can, Oh, can you talk about, um, heart disease? I can't sure, you know, and then I'm trying, and then I'm going on Google and trying to find everything I can to put something together. I'm not an expert in it. And it's to me that it's misleading. So I think it's important that you, that you focus on what you know, you're good at. Mm-hmm. What can you do? What can you talk about? What is that specialty and piecing that together and being creative in the way that you do have your talks, like, um, like mindfulness, I know can be very complementary to art therapy. So I have a talk on mindfulness mm-hmm. and that mindfulness talk. I talk about art therapy and how it complements it. So I do an overview of mindfulness. What is it? What does it mean? How is that useful in life and the body and the brain? And then what are some art therapy techniques that help? in that moment, you know, so you kind of mix it up like, okay, here's mindfulness and art therapy, or you can just do one, an introduction to art therapy. Mm-hmm. And that's a common one I get asked a lot as an introduction, but then how much do you want to give away? Mm-hmm. You know, you, these people are not art therapists. So it's not like, you know, you may have an artist coming that's interested and then they take what you have to say. And the next thing you know, they're working at the facility down the street as an art therapist, you know, per se. That has happened. It's like, you have to be careful that you're giving enough information that's enticing and informative, but you don't want to give it all away Mm -hmm. in that moment. So it's, you know, it's educating to enough and talks, you know, generate typically at the end, you got to look at your audience, you know, like if I'm speaking, if I'm speaking at, you know, I'm going to speaking at a conference at uh, Eli Lilly, and I know these are all scientists in there and I know I can talk my, my scientific jargon and they're going to understand. If I'm giving this talk to a lay caregivers group at, you know, an Alzheimer's support network group, you really have to, as you know, the CEO president Clark Pollard says, you have to dumb it down. (laughs) You know, you have to speak layman's terms. You know, you can't speak in this Greek you got to speak it, you know, speak in the native language. So you want to keep it basic, especially if, you know, you know that your audience is a general public. Even if you are giving a talk, say you're giving a talk at an assisted living facility on art therapy and you're, you're assuming that the activity director or the CNAs know about the disease or they know about, they should know about art therapy, chances are they don't. Mm-hmm. So it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's educating them how this differs from arts and crafts, how this differs from other activities that they may be offering. And presentations, I will ask how, you know, how long typically an hour is good. And that includes Q&A. Okay. You want people to, um, you want to sustain their attention. And I find that if you, if you start really, you know, going on like hour and a half, you start losing, you can start losing people. So some talks I will be told I have only 30, 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. So in that 30, 40 minutes, I really have to condense what I'm giving. I just want to give the key points and then the q and A. I I did do a talk where I was asked to give a talk at, um, I think it was the Kiwanis Club, and I had literally 20 minutes. Oh, wow. That's not much yeah. time at all. No. And there have been times, and, you know, there have been other organizations where it was the same thing. They just wanted me to come give a brief, you know, 10-minute 10, 10 talk, so 10-20-minute talk. So sometimes that gets caught in the moment. So I have a whole presentation that's an hour long. And next thing I know, I only get 20 minutes. So I'm going to highlight just the slides that I know I can be in that time frame, and then be sure to answer Q&A. And that's why it's important that what you're talking about is your specialty, because I can guarantee you, you're going to get questions that you're going to need to know and be able to answer articulately. If you don't know, then it's, it's an, you know, and it's okay to say, like for myself, I get a lot, sometimes I'll get questions that are really related to a physician or a mm. nutritionist. If I'm talking about lifestyles and I'll get a nutrition question. I will say, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a physician, but this is what I do know. And I'll offer, you know, what I do know, but I make that distinction that I'm, you know, that I'm not, you know, an MD. Sure. Sure. Which sometimes that can be confusing. People want to call you a doctor. Um, as a therapist for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, that's a different thing altogether. 
Um, but yeah, it's it definitely we have to be, you know, very educated on what we do, but we're not a doctor. Yeah, it's um, just making those distinctions. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in a, in a tech term, sometimes too, it's um, a lot of times I've gone to facilities or libraries where they didn't have their tech equipment. Oh, so you just, yeah, so you just talk. Um, But so that's a question I have learned over the years to ask, do you have a laptop and a projector available or a Mm -hmm. wall or a screen to project on? That's become a routine for me because there's too many times where I've shown up and they did not have those, those things. And it was just assumed that they did. So as a, as you're going out speaking, you have your PowerPoint and flash drive. You just want to make sure just on the, you know, your dotting the I's and crossing the T's that these things are available. If not, you need to bring in your own. Yeah, no, that's really great advice. Really great advice. And um, I know earlier we were talking about how, you know, here in Florida, you you kind of started because of the jobs that you were working at, which allowed you to um, go out and do all of these community-based um, teachings. And that started to um, allow you to build kind of a side practice um, for groups. But you also mentioned that before you were here and you were living in New Jersey, you actually were very intentional about how you created a program by um, going out to agencies. Can you share a little bit of like what the similarities or differences were in terms of like the PR kit that you were talking about? Yeah. So when I was in New Jersey, um, I worked um, for a home care company. So I would encourage if you have, if you know, some of your listeners are out there, art therapists, and you're looking to get into this field, um, partnering with a home care company, I think could be a really good thing to do because there's so many out there and they all tend to do the same type of services. So it stands you out. Mm -hmm. So you're contracting an art therapist and many, it's surprising to me how many home care companies do not employ expressive arts therapists. And it really could be to their benefit to do that. So I had the good fortune of working for a home care company who did think creatively and out of the box. So here I was as their educator marketing person going out and educating and marketing and you know, pinpointing the region. And I, I was in a, an area that I did not know at all. I'm new to New Jersey. I didn't, you know, I'm still relying on my GPS for everything. And I'm having to strategically pick out, you know, the libraries, the churches, the hospitals, the synagogues, the, you know, the, the different elder departments and parks and recs department, all those things. And um, then I sat down with the owners and said, you know, I think we could do a lot with art therapy that would really not only enhance, you know, the care that we're giving to clients, but even open it up to other agencies. And they thought that's a great idea. So we came up with a deal. So I worked, I worked full time for them. And, but then they would, they, we kind of had a deal with the art therapy. They allowed me to go into the facilities and they took a portion of, of what I did. It was kind of like acting as an agent. You know, they took a mm-hmm. portion of what I made. So what I did was I came up with that same kind of document, but I, I had kind of like a kit where I, I got in actual um, samples of artwork that I did have permission to use. Of course, no names or anything identifying names were on it and was able to use just, you know, highlight about two or three cases that I worked with and came up with a paper that was a a simple article that I was able to find on how art therapists benefit facility, you know, dementia care. Mm -hmm. So I came prepared with articles about, you know, how this, how we're beneficial, how this helps, what I can bring to the table. And then I would, I would meet with different, different skilled nursing facilities, independent and assisted living and dementia. The people that you really should target are the marketing directors because the marketing, the marketing directors at the facility, their job is to bring clients into the facility. So they're looking for creative ways on how they can stand out more. What are facilities Mm -hmm. offering that, you know, what are they, what can we offer that other people are not offering? So that's who I, so marketing people have been the most interested is what in my findings. So I would sit down with the marketing person. I would share my 
articles with them. I would talk, I would show them examples. Like here's a case study of, of a woman I worked with in California and she was very depressed, but look, you know, and then after working, this is her artwork that she did. And this is what she said about it. And immediately they're sold. They, they see, and they can firsthand see the difference. Mm-hmm. And then they introduce me to the activity director and they say, you know, and it's funny because I've had some where they, they don't say to them or ask them, they tell them we're hiring. <laughs> She's coming <laughs> in. So, um, and in some cases it has been the activity director that I did meet with. And those are the great ones because their activity directors are looking, Mm -hmm. they are looking for meaningful activities and, you know, and an engagement. So I'm, you know, and I do have to say, you cannot compete with bingo. So whenever that's something I've learned in 19 (laughs) years, do not schedule your art therapy sessions on the same day as bingo, because you will, (laughs) you will lose. (laughs) That is so funny. It's true. They love their bingo, but, um, the dopamine reward center is like really getting a lot of activation. They are. (laughs) So I've learned I cannot compete with bingo. So, um, but yeah, but meeting with the marketing director and the activity or life enrichment director has been, those two people are the key people. And it's good to have the marketing behind your back because they are working very closely with the executive director and that's who arranges for the budget because that's the uh, first thing you're going to hear from an activity director is I don't have a budget. And that's so the how, first do, thing how do we address hear. that? So you don't have, <laughs> which, oh, I, speaking of advocacy, I go on a rant. I'm like, you know, the activity director next to the director of nurses is the most important person in that facility because they are the lifeline to that resident's happiness. You need to pay them well, and you need to have a budget to bring meaningful activities into their facility and actually give some quality of life to your residents, because this is their home. So yeah, I have a big issue with (laughs) budgets and stinginess. But um, when you do work, when I talk with the executive director or talk to marketing activity, um, they will try to underball it. You know, I'll give them, I'll I'll tell them a fee, and then they want to completely not even, you know, they want to go half, if not less than half of what you presented. And that's an issue. So, you know, as you know, if you're a registered therapist or even working toward your supervision, and this is your practice, then, you know, it is a mutual kind of respect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have qualifications and training and education that they don't have. And I will talk, I will have these conversations, you know, with the executive director or the marketing person and be like, well, this is my fee. Yes, I have met people halfway. We have met in the middle somewhere. Um, You know, I'm not excessive in what I I think I ask, but I also will emphasize that I bring my own art supplies Mm -hmm. because majority of the time, the facilities are going to use crayons and childlike materials. Uh, Yeah. I try to use dignifying materials when I'm in those, when I'm working with seniors. And when I tell them that I bring my own art supplies and I'm coming here, you know, once a week, I try to offer weekly. So some facilities may contract you weekly or every other week. Mm -hmm. I may just want you to come once or, you know, once a month. So, which I, you know, I think weekly is, is by far the most beneficial, but really helping to educate and talking, you know, you do want to have these meetings where you sit down and you have an understanding about, I'm bringing my own supplies. They are dignified. This is what I'm doing. This is my training and expertise. And, and this is what, you know, this is why I think it's worth, why, why this is worth that. Mm-hmm. And when I did present that, even in New Jersey, um, I was in different counties, different areas, and not necessarily high income areas either. It was a range of different mixes. And I ended up getting 12 clients. I was at 12 different facilities. That's a lot. It is a lot. It, it got to the point where I was realizing, oh my God, what did I do? You know, because I'm still trying to get into my work for the for the home care company. So who were very gracious and generous, but it ended up being a really nice complimentary relationship between myself, the home care company, because they also used me and they paid me well to, as a as an art therapist to go into a client's home and work one-to-one doing an art therapy session with one of their clients. Well, that's a really, um, I I think in addition to thinking about going out and selling yourself to an actual facility, 
building a relationship with a home care company as a resource when they do see clients that could really benefit and and if you're willing to go out to their home. Um, that's a great idea. Absolutely. And then even working with families. I, you know, I worked with a woman who she ended up having young onset and was very mm-hmm. angry and in denial. And her husband came to the home care company and was like, I don't know what to do. And so um, they, they were like, how was she do with art? She was very opposed in the beginning. I would just come over and talk, but eventually we got to sit at the kitchen table and we, you know, I created with her because it made her weird. It made her feel conscious to sit there and have me watching her create. So we would just kind of paint together and I was one-to-one with her, but then you also worked with the family. You know, mm-hmm. she had two adult children well, one was going into high school. Um, one was graduating college. Wow. So I would have family meetings as well. Yeah. You know, and even here in Florida, I've had, a, you know, I've gone into different homes and have worked with clients in homes as well as with their family members doing art therapy sessions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if somebody were to like want to approach a home care company like that, um, in that, would they still reach out to the person in the marketing space of the home company, the marketing director of the home company? The clients or the art therapist? The art therapist. So if the art therapist wanted to build a relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, so home care companies are typically, a lot of them are mostly franchises. So they, they're owned. Okay. Um, so usually they have an owner. Um, from my experiences, it's usually family, it's usually a family operated franchise where it's a husband and wife or sister, siblings. Um, so, but usually it's a franchise, if not, they're independent, but they typically have their own owners. So what I would suggest is, you know, and there's so many of them, but it's, but you also want to look at, you know, who, who has the, the good, who has good reviews, who's doing, you know, who's going above and beyond. And, um, you also want to look at home care companies because some only take some, most of them are private pay where they can't afford to bring in to contract an art therapist. And then you have some that are insurance only Medicare, okay. Medicaid, they can't pay. I mean, that's okay. the reality. Fortunately, right. that's the reality unless you're willing to, to, you know, and of course I'm not, I don't want to deter anybody from working in that. Cause those are the people that probably need it the most. Um, but, you know, working, but you just, just something to think about in the back of your mind, you know, mm-hmm. Medicare, Medicaid versus private pay, you know, working, you know, so you, you probably have, as a therapist wanting, if you want, this is what you want to go into in a private practice and being contracted, um, you may not, you may need to come up with a sliding scale fee, mm-hmm. depending on, on what, you know, who, who it is you're working with, but home care, they're usually smaller in operations. You may only have like five people that work in the office. Okay. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So like right at home, home instead, um, senior helpers, that's who I worked for. Um, Sheraton caregivers, they're in Westport, Connecticut. They're the only home care company that I know that exists that actually hires full-time art therapists. Wow. Yeah. That's most wonderful. Them, yeah, most of them graduated from Albertus Magnus program and, and got hired on with them. And I just think that's amazing. I was so impressed with everything that they do and their client services. I think they're a role, I personally feel like they're a role model for home care companies because of the work that they do, not just in art therapy, but just the work that they do and who they employ. But yeah, so, but calling up one of the, you know, home care company and just identifying yourself, you know, I'm an art therapist and this is, you know, I'm interested to see if you would be interested in working together and trying to arrange a meeting. Awesome. No, that's really great. Um, really great advice. And I think for folks that are looking to build a practice where they are, um, they don't have to have the brick and mortar themselves. And it's such a great option because you really can have a robust practice with contract work alone. You can, absolutely. Um, I do want to mention that you know, for an art therapist going into the field, you may get a home care company or a facility that wants you to sign a contract. Make sure that that contract does not exclude you because you may have some that absolutely do not want you working for another home care company. They do not want you contracted with another facility. Oh, okay. So, so no, those non-compete, 
type yes, clauses? Yes, yes. So I don't, I don't see that very often, but it has come up. So if this is your job and this is what you're looking to do, unless they're willing to hire you full time and, you know, or employ you, you know, those are things that you want to negotiate in that contract. So make sure you go through, if they do have you sign a contract with which most do, mm-hmm. make sure you go through that with a fine tooth comb and you may want to even seek um, some legal advice. No, I think for, that's for private practice. That's really great advice um, for sure. I, I yeah. <laughs> Yeah, dealt with my fair share of strange contracts over the years. Yeah, we both have. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's it's good to have somebody to um, ha- review them and say, yeah, this language is is a little bit um, strange, and it doesn't behoove you to sign this contract if they're not willing to negotiate and and redraft yeah. it. Yeah, when you're looking at contracts, you want to make sure that it's that it's a mutual benefit because most of the time it's leaning towards, you know, their side. So you want to make sure that it has in there how much is being agreed for payment, when you're going to be paid, and, you know, just making sure like does it say you can't compete with anybody else or, you know, if you terminate your contract, does it say that you can't work for another competitor for a year afterwards? I mean, that's the stuff you got to look for. Yeah, yeah, because that would be uh, counterproductive if you were trying to create a practice out of, you know, the Absolutely. contract work. Um, yes, and and I unfortunately have seen those with other people in the field. So it's it's just things that I was as we're talking that I'm remembering like look for. Mm-hmm. And that wouldn't. I, it makes me think too. Like it's one thing if you're working for a company full time and you're salaried and they're paying all your benefits, et cetera. But if you're just going in once a week to offer a single group that is over the line, it's definitely overstepping. And um, and I think it it maybe borders on being illegal because it prevents somebody from actually working in their occupation. Um, and that is one of the things that is not supposed to happen in a non-compete clause from what I've, I've understood um, from the lawyers that I've talked to. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't stop people from trying. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's amazing things that are out there. So it is, it's just important to that, you know, you're kind of you're just, just smart about it and, you know, looking at it very carefully. Mm-hmm. For therapists that are interested in um, really developing a private practice around this niche, do you have any um, any words of advice that um, you would bestow upon them? Yeah, if, I mean, this is, it's, you know, it's good news and bad news is that, you know, it's becoming a more and more high demand field population. You know, the bad news is more people are being diagnosed with the type of dementia, but it also is creating more opportunity for an art therapist to come in and do some really good work. So I would just say to, you know, really scope out the, you know, it's a team effort, you know, and especially in private practice, you know, it's, it, it is hard and to maintain client and sustainability. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage, you know, as for a private practice setting, you know, being contracted can be quite lucrative. It can be a really good thing. You're setting your own hours. You can work within the flexibility of time. But, you know, I would align, I would align yourselves with a home care company. I think actually that's one of the best things you can do because more people are wanting to age in place. Oh, yeah. And to, and to be at home. And as an art therapist, you know, really come up with your toolkit, come up with your little PR kit, you know, don't make it too overwhelming because people aren't going to read it. Just create bullet points of how, how you are beneficial and why you are needed because you are needed. You're very needed. And there's research. I mean, even at getting some of the research articles showing exactly how an art therapist and creativity stimulates neural activity. Mm -hmm. You're not curing the disease, but you are increasing quality of life you're lessening psychotropic drug usage. You're, you know, you're improving mood and behavior. 
there's so many factors that you bring to the table. So by just bullet pointing that and aligning yourselves with home care companies, with care facilities, mm -hmm. those are the two agencies I would say would be your best bet in terms of contract work. Awesome. So that's what I would, that's what I would recommend. That's what I personally would recommend going to and what I've used for myself and what I've mentored um, my graduate students mm. in their work. Yeah, no, it's great advice. Um, if, if listeners want to find out more about you, more about your work, which I have to say, when we read your bio, it's really, really small. It's only like a fraction of all of the things that you do and have done and accomplished. Um, where can they find out more about you, Angel? Thank you. Um, I can be reached at my, my university email would be the best. It's a Duncan, D-U-N-C-A-N at U-T, U-T as in Tom, at uh, dot E-D-U. Okay, I'll put that Duncan, in the show yeah. notes. A Duncan at uh, ut.edu. That would be the best way to reach me. And um, you can also look at the Cognitive Dynamics Foundation website. And I'm okay. also um, I'm also accessible through our foundation's website. Okay. And that's cogn that's cognitivedynamics.org. .org. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I so appreciate you sharing all of your wisdom. And I, I hope that um, other therapists that are starting off and getting their feet wet in private practice find um, it inspiring to know that you can build a practice without even intending to build a practice. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Just, just through educating and, and being an advocate. So um, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. I won't say much on this outro because I said so much on the intro, but I really hope that you appreciate this conversation with Angel. And um, if you ever have the opportunity to listen to her speak um, on the topic of art therapy and, um, and you know, neuro, neurodegenerative uh, diseases, I highly recommend um, I highly recommend it. She's really brilliant and highly knowledgeable and, um, and also I think just really inspirational. Um, at least I find her to be, <laughs> I think you will too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the creative psychotherapist. If you like what you heard, please rate review and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts for show notes, downloads, and additional resources, head over to the website at www.creativeclinicianscorner.com.